You know, unrecognized greatness can be sad, but it can also be silly. Our 41st president of the United States was George H.W. Bush. And in 1991, President Bush attended an elementary school in Alexandria, Virginia, to meet the students. But one of the first students he met was an eight-year-old skeptic named Anthony. And Anthony Henderson did not believe it was the president of the United States. And he said, how do we know it's really you? And so this precocious third grader was skeptical. And President Bush said, well, why wouldn't it be me? And he reached into his wallet and he pulled out his Texas driver's license and said, see, son, it says B-U-S-H. Well, the little boy was not quite convinced yet. So the president then started flipping through some of the photographs in his wallet of his grandchildren. And he said, see, these are my grandchildren. This is my grandson playing baseball. But once again, Anthony was not having any of it. And so the president then reaches in his wallet and he pulls out that green American Express card. It's a good thing he didn't leave home without it that morning. And the little boy took it and read B-U-S-H. And he said, well, I guess it's you. And the president said, look outside the window. Do you see that black limousine? Who else would come to your school in a car like that? And so ultimately the little boy was convinced he was in the presence of greatness. He became a bit of a star for the next few days. Bryant Gumbel interviewed him on the Today Show. And he, he asked him, why were you so skeptical that President Bush was actually President Bush? And the little boy said, well, don't you see, it was just a week earlier that another man showed up at our school wearing tights and a wig claiming to be Leonardo da Vinci. You just never know. <laughs> so unrecognized greatness can sometimes be silly, but it can also at times be sad. And while there is so much joy at Christmas, it is also sad that so many people do not recognize who Jesus really is. That he is none other than the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah, that each one of us need. And while two billion plus followers of Jesus around the world will celebrate his birth in a few days, there are still billions more who do not recognize who Jesus really is. And they've not received him into their life. It's interesting that so many people who do not believe in Jesus still get the benefits of his birthday. We love having Christmas vacation, not just the movie, actually Christmas vacation. We love having Christmas bonuses. We love Christmas presents. We love all the Christmas festivities. But often we neglect the very one whose birthday we're celebrating. And it is sad when his greatness goes unrecognized and unreceived by so many people around the world. And it was also true when Jesus came the first time. Most people did not recognize him for who he really was. People who should have known, people who should have been expecting, people who should have been tuned in to what God was doing. Many of them, most of them, did not receive him, did not believe in him. In fact, many of them rejected him as the Messiah, the Savior. He didn't meet their expectations. He didn't meet their political uh, expectations. He, he just wasn't what they were looking for. 
And so many people missed it on that first Christmas. And they missed it all throughout his life. And yet, the first followers of Jesus made it their life's ambition to tell other people about him. Because they had come to believe in him and to receive him as their Lord and Savior. And he had changed their life. They had placed their confidence in the one who promised, if you will put your confidence in me, I will forgive you of your sins. I will make you a part of the family of God. And I will give you life that lasts forever. And they had not only seen him live a perfect life, they also watched him die a death on a cross that no one should have to die. And having thought that everything was over, that that maybe they were mistaken in putting their confidence in Jesus, three days later he rose from the dead and he physically appeared to over 500 people alive. And it changed their lives and it changed the, the purpose of their life and it changed the direction of human history. And they made it their life's ambition to tell other people about Christ. And listen, if you're new to our church or if you're new to church in general or If you're new to Christianity and you're checking this thing out, you may sometimes wonder, why do they make such a big deal about telling other people about Jesus? Why can't you just live and and let other people live and believe whatever they believe? Why do they have to tell others about Jesus and ask people to place their faith in Jesus? It is because if you know who he really is, you want other people to know who he really is. And one of the most loving things we can do is to help you understand who Christ is. We can't force people to believe. We would not even try to force people to believe. But we do want to introduce people to the great Savior who loves you, who can forgive you of your sin and all the wrong of your life, who can make you a part of the family of God, and who can give you a life that lasts forever. That's really what Christmas is all about. That's the greatest gift anyone has ever given you, Jesus. And God the Father gave you that first gift. I want to take you to the Gospel of John today because John, one of the first followers of Jesus, was concerned about people who didn't yet believe in Jesus, and he wanted them to come to know Jesus like he did. And so today we're going to look at John chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. John was one of those disciples of Jesus who lived for those three and a half years with Jesus during Jesus' public ministry. He heard the sermons Jesus preached. He watched the miracles Jesus performed. He saw Jesus arrested and betrayed and crucified and buried. And like the other disciples, there was a period of time in those intervening hours but from the Friday when Jesus was crucified to the Sunday morning when Jesus rose from the dead that even John thought maybe we were wrong. Maybe Jesus was not the Messiah that we've all been looking for. And yet Jesus appeared to John and the other disciples physically alive from the grave, changed his life from that point forward. He lived the rest of his life being hunted and haunted by the Roman Empire, being persecuted, exiled, banished by the Roman Empire. For one reason, he wouldn't stop telling people about Jesus because he had met the Jesus who was truly the Son of God who came into the world to show God's love and to offer God's forgiveness. And he wanted people to know. And he wanted people to believe. And so he, he does something different than the other gospel writers. Where the other gospel writers typically begin the Christmas story by talking about the what of Christmas. And they talk about angels and stars. And they talk about Bethlehem and Herod. John and his gospel just gets straight to the why of Christmas. 
He's not so interested in the what of Christmas and all the details. He gets straight to the why of Christmas. Why did Jesus come into the world? Why is it important that you know him and recognize and believe in him? It's because this is the answer to our sin problem, and this is the key to eternal life. In John chapter 1, verse 9, he begins this way. He writes, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. John is referring to that first Christmas. He's referring to what God was up to when he sent his son Jesus into the world. Jesus was and is the true light. He's the true light that can dispel the darkness. And John is not referring just simply to physical light. He's referring to spiritual light. That we live in a spiritually darkened world because of sin. Our bodies are broken because of sin. Our relationships are broken because of sin. Creation is broken because of sin. And Jesus comes as the true light to dispel the darkness. And that's what he did as he lived his life. He dispelled darkness. Where there was darkness, he brought the light of life. Where there was sin, he brought purity. Where there was racism, he brought acceptance. Where there was hatred, he brought love. Everywhere he went, he just revealed himself as the true light of life, which gives light to everyone. He did not discriminate in offering the light and the love of God. He didn't just come for a handful of Jews in the first century. He came for all people. And he came as the true light coming into the world. In fact, have you ever noticed something about Jesus? Every major world religion makes room in their theology for Jesus. Every world religion, every major world religion, even if they don't acknowledge the truth, even if their beliefs are heretical, they still try to make room in their, their theology for Jesus because everybody knows you just can't go wrong with Jesus. That Jesus lived such a great life, everybody wants a piece of Jesus. And everybody knows that the world would be a better place if more of us lived like Jesus. It's why so often you'll hear some Christians uh, reciting what is uh, often called the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. Most scholars do not believe that this prayer actually is from uh, St. Francis, that, uh, that really we can't find the first uh, reference to it until like the 1920s. But still, there's something powerful about that prayer that says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. And the reason that prayer resonates with so many followers of Jesus is because it reminds them of Jesus. That's what he did. He went about sowing love where others had sown hatred. Bringing hope and healing and light. And we all recognize our world would be a better place if we were like Jesus. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. That's what was happening on that first Christmas morning. But sadly, John continues in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came into the world, 
that he himself had created. Because the inspiration of Holy Scripture teaches that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, the triune God, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that as the Son of God, Jesus existed eternally and co-equally with God the Father. And that Jesus is actually the creator of the universe. He created you, and he created the universe. It was Jesus who was the one speaking in Genesis, let there be light. And as the true light, it was so. It was Jesus who flung the stars into the sky and knows them name after name. It was Jesus who created the world and he came into the world and sadly, having made the world, the world did not know him. So many people then and now still refuse to recognize him or to believe in him. There have been many rejections in human history, but this has to be the supreme rejection. That the maker was rejected by men. The creator was rejected by his creation. The savior, spurned by sinners, came and was not recognized. It gets worse. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Jesus did not just appear in some obscure place that had no clue to expect the Messiah. No, he appeared not to an alien people, but to his own people, to the Hebrew people, to God's chosen people. And everything in their history and prophecy pointed toward the expectation that God would invade human history, that God would send a suffering servant, that God would send his Messiah into the world. And sadly, he came to his own place and he came to his own people and they did not receive him. They didn't believe in him. He didn't live up to their expectations. He wasn't exactly what they were looking for. They were looking for a political ruler to overthrow Rome. They weren't looking for a humble servant like Jesus. But everything should have told them. Their prophecies for centuries had foretold the Messiah is coming. The temple where they worshipped was a standing reminder of the promise of God that one day God will dwell with his people physically and will never leave them. That sacrificial system of lambs and bulls and goats was a constant reminder of the promise that one day he would send the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And even the prophets of old had said there's coming one who will not just speak on behalf of God, but who will be God himself speaking to us. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. Even in his birth, there was no room for him in the inn. Whenever he grows up and begins his public ministry and preached his first sermon, his hometown sought to kill him and push him over a cliff. Tom, you fared better in your first sermon. We didn't try to stone you or kill you. But even Jesus' own hometown rejected him. John chapter 7, you see Jesus preaching, teaching, performing miracles 
And some of his own family members say he's out of his mind. We need to go and get him, take him home, and hide him away somewhere. He's lost it. Even some of his own family did not receive him. And even the night he's betrayed by Judas and he's arrested by the Jewish Sanhedrin, all of his disciples, with the exception of John, who wrote this gospel, fled and hid themselves from the true light in the shadows. Back, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago, I attended a seminar at First Baptist Daytona Beach, Florida. One of our church members, Mr. Randy Collins, went with me. And during one of the breaks, several hundred of us at the conference uh, filed out of the sanctuary at First Baptist Daytona, walked outside through the parking lot to a building adjacent to their sanctuary that was their kitchen and fellowship hall. And there we got a meal. And because there were so many of us, we had to queue up and stand in line to get into the fellowship hall. And once Randy and I reached the glass doors to the fellowship hall, we noticed that they had been propped open. Nothing unusual about that. And there was some ugly, uh, nondescript brick propping open the door. We go in, we eat, we talk, we go back to the sanctuary, and then we notice something's different this time about the sanctuary. Now, right at the front, there is a table with that ugly, nondescript brick sitting on it with two armed guards on either side. What is this about? Oh, this is some joke they're playing. Until the pastor gets up and he says, this brick was holding the door open to the fellowship hall, and most of you didn't even notice it. And the rest of you who did notice it didn't appreciate it. 1622, a Spanish galleon sunk off the coast of Florida. It was called the Atosha. Down with it, 265 people, only five survivors. The cargo the Atosha was carrying, millions of dollars worth of silver and gold ingots, coins and rare jewels. For 60 years after that ship sank, During a hurricane, the Spanish government sought to find that ship and to rescue all of that precious cargo, but they could never find it, and they gave up. And it lay undiscovered for 360 years until Mel Fisher in 1985 discovered the wreck of the Atosha. And that is one of the silver ingots retrieved from the ocean floor that is worth tens of thousands of dollars. And some of you propped your foot on it. Some of you kicked it. Some of you ignored it. And that day, that silver ingot was an illustration of the value of a human soul. That no matter who we're looking at or who we're interacting with, they are a person created in the image of God. And they're so valuable that God sent his only son to die for them, to save them from their sin. That was the illustration on that day. But today, can I tell you, out of all the souls that have ever been born into this world, our Lord and Savior was worthy of recognition, worthy of worship, worthy of adoration. And yet most people even his own people, did not receive him. They did not welcome him, John says. And it was a heartbreaking rejection that so many failed to see the great gift God gave on that Christmas morning and that God gave on that cross of Calvary. But there is good news. 
John chapter 1, verse 12. John says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. John says, while many, maybe most, have rejected him, those who did receive him, to them God gave the right. He gave the privilege. He gave the authority. He gave the power to become the children of God to those who receive him and to those who believed in his name. And and those two words, receive and believe, interpret one another. What does it mean to receive him It means to believe in his name. What does it mean to believe in his name? It means to receive him. It means to welcome him into your life. Now listen, Christianity is more than just knowing that Jesus is the virgin-born son of Mary. It's more than just knowing he lived a sinless life. It's more than just knowing that he lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death on the cross for you and for me. Christianity is more than just knowing that he rose from the dead on the third day and was seen physically alive three days later by over 500 people over a span of 40 days. Christianity is more than that, but it's certainly not less than that. But you can know all that with your head, but not truly receive him and believe in his name. In fact, the half-brother of Jesus, James, said in one of his letters, even the demons believe and they tremble. You can go to seminary and know the Bible better than the pastor. And still, if it's not beyond just your head into your heart, you can't become a child of God. I love history. One of the people I loved loved when I I learned about him was a man named, he was given the name, the Great Blondin. B-L-O-N-D-I-N, the great Blondin. He was a French tightrope walker and acrobat from the 1800s. He became really famous in the 1860s and 70s, 80s. He was most famous for walking a tightrope over Niagara Falls. A thousand feet above the raging water below, 160 feet across from one edge of the falls to the other. And sometimes he would walk, like in this picture, he would walk across just carrying a balance beam. Other times he would walk across and he would sit down in the middle uh, of the rope and, and eat a meal. Other times he would push a wheelbarrow across. Sometimes he would take a chair and prop and balance a chair on the tightrope and sit on the chair. It was almost superhuman what this guy was able to do. On one occasion, having successfully crossed on the tightrope several times, there were these great crowds of people on either side of the falls cheering him on, just standing amazed at what he could do. And when he reached the edge, he said, how many of you believe that the great Blondin can walk across Niagara Falls carrying someone on his back? And everybody says, we believe, we believe. And he says, which one of you will climb on my back? No one volunteered. Only his manager, Henry Colcord, was willing to climb on the back of the great Blondin and be carried across Niagara Falls on a tightrope with no safety net below. This is the difference between believing that and believing in. 
Some people believed that Jesus was born on that first Christmas, that Jesus was born of Mary, that Jesus lived a good life, that Jesus performed miracle. I believe that Jesus was crucified. Some people may even believe intellectually that he rose from the dead. That's not Christianity. It certainly is not less than that, but it's more than that. Christianity is not just believing that. Christianity is believing in it is putting your confidence, your faith, your trust in a person. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is climbing on Jesus, saying, I stake my eternal destiny on you. The only way I can ever span the chasm between my sinful life and a holy God in heaven is if you do it, Jesus, because I can't do it. And I believe in you. And I trust in you. And John says, here's the good news. For as many as believed in him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. The Son of Man, the Son of God was born the Son of Man so that the sons of men can become the children of God. God loves you. God wants you in his family. And God sent the greatest gift Christmas will ever know in that first gift of Jesus himself. And all you've got to do this Christmas is receive him. Welcome him into your life. Put your hope and your confidence in him and trust him. Now, don't misunderstand me. John is not writing about religion and doing good deeds and putting money in the offering plate and hoping that at the end of your life, the good of your life outweighs the bad of your life. And if that's the case, then woo, you get to go to heaven. No. Becoming a child of God, having your sins forgiven, having life that lasts forever is not based on what you do. It is based on what Jesus did. That's why John would continue in verse 13 referring to the children of God. He says, who were born. These are the children of God who have received Christ and believed in his name. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John is trying to tactfully illustrate how that in human conception, people play a part in that. But when it comes to your spiritual birth into the family of God, you don't get to play a part. It is all the sovereign work of God. It is not based on blood. It's not based on I'm a Jew and I'm related to Abraham. It's not that my parents were Christians, therefore I must be a Christian. No, no. It's not based on blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but solely on the will of God. And God has decreed, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And this is politically incorrect, but based on Jesus, you either take it or you leave it. There's no plan B. Jesus is not a good way to get to God. He's the way. He's the only begotten Son of God whom you need to receive and believe in. You say, but pastor, I'm so skeptical and I've got questions. I get that. In fact, John got that. John understood what it was to have questions. He was one of the first who had questions. But this is what he writes in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, 
glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, I know you have questions. I know you're skeptical. I know you're not sure if you can believe this story because it may sound too good to be true and it's got miracles in it and you're talking about God becoming man and there's so much that just is hard to get your mind around. He says, I get that, but let me cut to the chase. I'm not writing, John says. I'm not writing about what I believe. I'm writing about what I have seen, what I have heard, what I have experienced first hand. And he says, as someone who lived with Jesus, I can tell you, God came in the form of Jesus and he dwelt with us. He lived with us. And we saw him. We saw him as the unique son of God, unlike any other person we've ever known. And in him, we saw him full of grace and truth. Listen, Christianity is not based on just what we believe. Christianity is based on the eyewitness testimony of people who were there. And if you're skeptical, listen, Christianity is open to investigation. But I will tell you this and caution you this. You weren't there. I wasn't there. The person you're following on YouTube and watching all of his videos, he wasn't there. John says, I was there. And John lived the end of his life as an old man, banished by a Roman emperor to a rocky six-mile by nine-mile island called the island of Patmos, separated from family and friends and the church he loved. Why would he live the rest of his days an outcast? persecuted by the Roman government, not even knowing if they would kill him like they killed the rest of Jesus' first followers. Why would he keep preaching Jesus? Because in Jesus, he recognized greatness. And he could never stop talking about it. And he wants you to believe in Christ as well. In fact, this Christmas, I'm going to encourage you, receive God's gift by believing in God's Son. Many of you have already done that. Celebrate this Christmas knowing that you have received God's gift by believing in God's Son. But maybe there's someone here who needs to do that today. It is going to be my prayer for you that this will be the first Christmas that you see it in a new light. I pray that every twinkling Christmas light you see will remind you of the true light who came into the world to show you how much God loves you, to demonstrate he's full of grace and truth, mercy and kindness. Every time you unwrap a present or you give a gift, I pray your mind rushes back to that first Christmas and the greatest gift ever given, given by God himself ultimately expressed as Jesus gave his own life for you on a cross. In fact, every time you see a Christmas tree from this day forward, with all of its beauty, greenery, adornment, I pray that your mind rushes back to an ugly wooden cross, devoid of anything other than the spotless Son of God, hanging there, bleeding, dying, as a volunteer for you. And that you will come to receive God's gift.
by believing in, trusting in, putting your confidence in Jesus. Maybe you're ready to do that right now. We're going to pray, and this will be a chance for you, maybe for the first time in your life, to receive Jesus into your life, to believe in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for the reminder that Christmas is about receiving your gift by believing in your Son. And I thank you that so many in this room have done that. And they are so grateful for how through Jesus you have forgiven them of their sin. You have given them a life that will never end. And you have brought them into the family of God where they can call God their father, Jesus their big brother, and have a family of faith in all people throughout all centuries who have believed in Jesus. And Father, there could be somebody in this room today, maybe a guest here today, maybe a longtime church member or a tender. It could be a husband or a wife. It could be a mom or a dad or a grandparent. It could be one of these young people who realizes that for the first time they need to move beyond believing that to believing in. They've heard the Christmas story. They know the story. They know the Christmas songs. But they've not yet welcomed Jesus into their life by believing in him. And I pray that today would be the day for them. In fact, friend, if that's you, while your head is bowed, your eyes are closed, maybe today you'll pray right where you are. You can pray silently and God will hear you. There's no magical prayer in the Bible, but maybe you would say something like this. And if you mean it from a sincere heart, God will hear you. So maybe my words will help you. So maybe you'll say something like this to God. Dear God, I thank you for Jesus, your son, the Savior. I admit that I'm a sinner. And I believe that Jesus is your son who came to die for me to pay the price for the gift of your forgiveness, the gift of eternal life, the gift of being a part of your family, adopted into the family of God. And so today, I confess my sin, and I confess my faith in Jesus who lived for me, who died for me, and who rose from the dead for me. I receive him into my life. I welcome him into my life. And I put my confidence in him. I don't put my confidence in myself to be good enough. I don't put my confidence in church membership or baptism or christening. I put my confidence in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And he is the one who promises that I have eternal life because I believed in his name. Thank you, Jesus, for saving me from my sin. Thank you for making me a child of God. Help me now to learn more about you in the days ahead so that I can live for you, showing the world that I recognize your greatness, who you are, and what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.